Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed. The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. So today, dress listeners, we continue our exploration into the historical significance of dress to the Summer Olympic athlete, which if we were not clear in the first episode, it is the Summer Not Winter Olympics, which are the focus of this series. And we are certainly fans of the Winter Olympics as well, but that little dance around the ice is going to have to wait until February of next year when the 24th Winter Olympics open in Beijing. So stay tuned for an episode on the evolution of figure skating attire, which has a very intimate and surprising connection with fashion. And we have been meaning to get to this episode for quite some time. Yeah, super excited. So much to look forward to, including this episode. As we will learn today, the fashion industry has played no small role in both the Winter and Summer Olympics over the years. While we might be familiar with the partnership between the world of fashion and the Olympics today, for instance, Ralph Lauren has, of course, been the official outfitter of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic team since 2008. This was not yet a relationship that had formed at the time of the 1928 Olympics, which is where we left off in our last episode. So today we pick up four years later at the 1932 Olympics, which we pinpoint as really laying the foundation for this symbiotic relationship between this international sporting event and the fashion industry that survives to this very day. The games of the 10th Summer Olympia, which were held in Los Angeles from July 30th to August 14th, 1932, were notable for many reasons, including the introduction of features that remain staples of the Olympics today. For instance, the 10th Olympiad's length of 16 days is particularly noteworthy here because prior to this, the shortest summer games had been 79 days long. <laughs> Which, as I said last time, I would totally watch 79 <laughs> Days of the Olympics. <laughs> and also, uh, the Summer Olympics in 1932 were also the first Olympics to feature the tiered winner's podium that we all know and love, and also the Olympic Village. Although the latter at this time was reserved for the male athletes, and the women athletes stayed at a very luxurious hotel called Chapman Park. In her oral interview with the LA84 Foundation, American hurdler Evelyn Hall Adams says, quote, I was also really honored when I was selected as the friendliest girl in the village. I love this. <laughs> I do too. I enjoyed changing costumes or changing our regular clothes. Sometimes we even changed uniforms back and forth. I changed with one of the German girls, Tilly Flesher. I wore her costume for pictures and she wore mine. I also changed with one of the Japanese girls. This was only for pictures because we only had one one uniform and couldn't trade them, but I did trade all my own clothes and all the jewelry I had, which wasn't much. And as exemplified by the trading of uniforms, staying together in these close quarters really fostered a sense of camaraderie between athletes that were otherwise competitors. 
The success of the 1932 Olympics was quite an impressive accomplishment considering they took place during the Great Depression, which is, of course, the huge economic downturn that wreaked havoc on the world beginning with the U.S. stock market crash in 1929. So despite the global reverberations of the Depression, 37 nations managed to send 1,300-plus athletes, of which 126 were women, to compete in L.A. with over 100 events. For comparison, this is just less than half of the athletes in the Amsterdam Games, which had preceded it. And apparently, getting these athletes to America was not easy. Some countries like Brazil and Cuba did not have the money to send their athletes to L.A. for the 1932 Olympics, so they sent them with goods like coffee beans and sugar, hoping that they could trade their way in. And apparently this worked for the Brazilians, but not for the Cubans who were sadly denied entry into the U.S. because the value of sugar had gone down and thus could not cover their expenses. That's heartbreaking, I'm just saying. Heartbreaking. (laughs) So the Depression definitely kept some athletes from the competition But the same cannot be apparently said of the spectators because some 100,000 people, the most people in the audience in Olympic history up until this point, packed the stadium for the opening ceremony, really eager to forget their woes in the midst of the Depression, you know, and they really wanted to support the international spectacle of athletic prowess that was about to begin. Oh, yeah. And each country's athletes came to perform and perform they did. The Japanese swim team, for instance, swept all of the swimming events but one. Wow. There was a Japanese swimmer by the name of Kasuo Kitamura who became the youngest male ever to win Olympic gold when at just 14, he took first place in the 1,500-meter freestyle. Gold medal wins were also achieved by American swimmer Helen Madison, who won gold in the 100-meter and 400-meter freestyle events, and the 4x100 freestyle relay, and American track and field star Mildred Babe Dietrichson, Babe was her nickname, uh, took home the gold in both the javelin throw, the high hurdles, and then she took home silver in the high jump. And it is said that Babe Dietrichson would undoubtedly have secured even more medals had women not been limited to participating in only or up to three events. So, you know, Mildred is really considered to be one of the greatest all-around women athletes in history. She excelled at not only track and field, but also basketball, baseball, and golf. And Cass, as you know, there is this very epic photo of her at the 10th Olympia, um, snapped just a few moments before she launches the javelin. And she is wearing this, you know, kind of familiar to us now, white tank and shorts, you know, as her uniform and the red and blue U.S. insignia on her chest, as well as a stripe running across her chest and on the side of her shorts. Yeah, so this is the uniform that we've seen many years prior, worn by both men and women, which honestly had not changed much since the debut of the modern Olympics in 1896. But it is worth noting that at these first games and kind of after, you know, those first couple of games, the uniform of t-shirt and shorts would have been worn by male athletes only, as women were not even allowed to participate in the 1896 games. But even if they had, there is no way in H women would have been allowed to wear garments that revealed so much of their body. Yes, but that would change as more and more women came to participate in the Olympics. For women to become winning athletes for their nation, 
they had to have clothing that helped not hindered their performance, you know, and we've talked about this on the show in the past, but I find it super interesting that it is actually women's stage performers and athletes who set the proverbial stage for all of these innovations in women's clothing that happened beyond the sporting arena, you know, and they do this years, sometimes even decades before clothing, such as pants, shorts, tank tops, et cetera, became societally acceptable forms of dress for women. Yeah. And I mean, even just one decade prior, Mildred's bare arms and legs would have been downright shocking. And perhaps in many ways, it still was April because it was also at the 1932 Olympics that the 16-year-old Australian swimmer Claire Dennis, who actually won the gold medal in the 200-meter breaststroke, get this, she was almost disqualified for showing, and I kid you not, quote, too much shoulder blade. And she did this while wearing her innovative Speedo Racer back silk swimsuit, which was designed to fit like a second skin and with the most minimal of coverage, you know. So this allowed swimmers like Claire to swim with greater ease and speed, hence the name Speedo. It's this Mm -hmm. Razorback model that actually gave Speedo its name after somebody coined the phrase, Speed on and your Speedo. And this is not the last we will hear of Speedos because the Australian company will remain at the vanguard, actually, of technological developments in swimwear into the present day today. And this is really going to be a recurring theme, dress listeners, you know, as Speedo is just one of the many clothing brands that will make a name for themselves, developing textiles and clothing specifically for athletic performance. Partnering with Olympic athletes will become a driving force for these developments as they both add an extra level of cachet by bringing international exposure for these brands. So, you know, we're not quite there yet, though, in the 1930s. That's a little bit further on and yet to come. Yes. And it was at the 1932 Olympics, however, that we do see the first large-scale promotion of the partnership between American clothing manufacturers and the Olympic team. More on that after we do a twisting somersault back handspring into a brief sponsor break. (laughs) Welcome back. Thanks to the United States Olympic Committee's incredibly detailed official reports for the 1932 Olympics, we were able to learn all about the first, or at least the first documented, but I'm pretty sure this is the first, Olympic Clothing Committee. And its creation appears to actually be the direct result of the unique circumstances dictated by producing an Olympic Games during a depression. For the Winter Olympics held earlier that year in Lake Placid, the committee had purchased All of the winter parade uniforms, i.e. meaning that these were the uniforms that they wore when they were not competing. Um, And they had also purchased the competition uniforms. So for the parade uniforms for the Summer Olympics, however, the committee depended entirely on the generous donations of over two dozen manufacturers who stepped up to do their part in supporting the American Olympic team. And this included the leading sporting goods company, A.G. Spalding and Brothers, who might sound familiar to you today as just Spalding, but who knew, April, that they had this long and illustrious history? I really had no idea, though I should have guessed. So the company was actually founded in 1876 by professional baseball player Albert Goodwill Spalding, who at that time was the pitcher and manager for the Chicago White Stockings, which obviously we love that name. Yes. Bring it back. (laughs) 
<laughs> and he apparently began his career in 1871 as a pitcher for the Boston Red Stockings. <laughs> <laughs> so fun fact, in the 19th century, it was super common for journalists to refer to sports teams by the color of their uniforms and the name stuck. And it is a practice attested to by teams like the Boston Red Sox to this very day. And how about another fun fact? Among many sports for innovations, Spalding is credited with the development of the first baseball glove and the first official baseball to be used in professional leagues, as well as the creation of the first mass-manufactured football, basketball, volleyball, all of which he was selling at his stores by the dawn of the 20th century. So by 1932, his stores also sold any number of sports-related clothing items from shoes to swimming suits to pants and jackets. And it is because of this that in 1932, women's wear daily credits Spalding and Brothers and its newly opened Fifth Avenue shop in New York City with innovating the one-stop sports shop. Again, super familiar to us today, but this was really a revelation in the 1930s. And women's wear daily writes, quote, one can test not only one's new golf club, but find a dress that will allow one a free swing and all the accessories, end quote. And this was a store that a sportswoman could basically dress herself from head to toe with, quote, a complete sports outfit from shoes and hats to bathing suits, dresses, and club or racket, end quote. And they were apparently April even selling high-end sportswear because the article comments on the presence of a tucked diamond scaparelli suit with apron ties. Okay, this is very shocking to me, and I think it bears further research investigation, investigation on my part. <laughs> Just say. <laughs> um, and it's also worth noting uh, that this article appears beside an ad for a brand called Mooncrest Knitted Fashions. And it was a company that billed itself as, quote, fashion's smartest styles for summer sportswear. And the ad actually features an illustration of a very fashionably dressed woman entirely divorced from any sort of a sports setting whatsoever. You know, she's wearing a cloche hat. She has on a lot of jewelry. She has on earrings. She has on gloves. She has on a dress. She has on high heels. And we just love this ad because it's this fantastic example of how this term sportswear kind of, you know, wormed its way into the wider fashion vernacular beyond clothing that is strictly used for sport, right? So it's a little more casual form of dress, a little more comfortable form of dress. So women athletes really pioneered this type of clothing that promoted comfort and the freedom of movement. And all of these characteristics, and you know, that come to be valued as staples of our everyday dress, you know, even today. For their contribution to the Olympic team parade uniform, A.G. Spalding and Brothers only donated the white flannel parade trousers, which I found super interesting. <laughs> and apparently each piece of the uniform was supplied by a different manufacturer and company. So, for instance, one company made and donated the team's white sweater vests while another donated the white silk socks and another donated the parade berets. And the diversity of donated products actually extended well beyond these official parade costumes to include silk and woolen swimsuits, locker room sandals, necklaces, even compacts, hand-printed handkerchiefs, rubberized capes, April, sports dresses, <laughs> bathing caps, and pool pajamas. I need to know more about these pool pajamas. I know. And I also feel like I want to get my hands on some of this merchandise. Like, surely it has to be out there with collectors somewhere. So if you have Olympic vintage memorabilia out there that's clothing related, maybe send us an email, y'all. There's actually this fantastic image of the Olympic women's swimming team and their sports pajamas, 
which of course we'll post. It consists of what appears to be a collared t-shirt with the U.S. insignia on the chest, of course, and then that fabulous belted wide flared pants that we all associate with pajamas of these period. And who is the designer, you may be asking? Well, we have not yet made it to the era of famed fashion designer uniforms. That is yet to come. However, thanks to the official report, we do know that the designer of these uniforms was the chairman of the clothing committee, someone we probably haven't heard of, and that was George W. Graves. And the concerted effort to assemble the parade and competition uniforms, or as they were also called at the time, their costumes, wasn't without its problems, as you can imagine, with with (laughs) organizing something of this magnitude. You know, the small amount of time between the Olympic trials and the actual Olympic Games meant that very few athletes could be fit in their uniforms before they headed to LA. And this made last minute alterations all the more difficult American hurdler Evelyn Hall Adams, who we heard from earlier, was complimentary of her parade uniform, which she said consisted of a silk dress, a sleeveless jacket, and a cute French beret. But she also says that her fellow teammate and tra- on the track and field team, Mary Carew, cried when they were presented with what she described as a man's wool track tank suit. And I am <laughs> I am assuming that is for their competition wear, not their yes, parade exactly. wear. Okay. okay. <laughs> you know, like we said, we are not yet in the era of innovation quite yet. And as Evelyn continues, quote, it was cut way down the sides. <laughs> Mary and I absolutely refused to wear it. So they had to call in the tailors and there was a lot of commotion around while all the girls were getting the sides of their suits sewn up. The trunks that we wore, so these were for their, their competition uniform, were white satin, and cotton, and it had loose legs with a red, white, and blue stripes down the side and around the waist. But because I was a hurdler, I had to go out and buy elastic to put in the legs. Also, (laughs) how had no one thought of this? I don't know. Also, we were given new white buck shoes. And if you knew how hot and stiff those were, and those are the shoes we had to wear in the opening parade. So these shoes, apparently, dress listeners, gave all of the women blisters, and many of them even took them off during the ceremony. But costuming hiccups, however, did not ruin the awe Mary and her teammates felt being a part of the opening ceremony that she says, quote, filled everyone up to the brim with the Olympic spirit. And for the American Olympic Committee, at least, the parade uniforms were an embodiment of the same spirit, representing a truly collaborative effort that became a symbol of immense pride for the committee and the manufacturers themselves. You know, many of these manufacturers were actually present at the opening ceremony. And the committee wrote at the time that, quote, the American Olympic Clothing Committee, on behalf of the American Olympic Committee, gives thanks to and has just cause to feel proud for the loyal cooperation received from the American manufacturers who so magnanimously contributed. It was an expression of patriotism, which will long be remembered. The committee also makes a point to note that the manufacturers had each been appointed as official Olympic team costumers. And this appears to be an entirely new title as we could not find it in any reports or newspaper articles prior to 1932. But this appointment, it's really important to note because it marks a significant turning point for clothing manufacturing relationships. Because for the first time, these companies actually began to promote their partnership to the wider public. So just as in fashion history, when we've seen dressmakers and couturiers proudly advertise their associations with members of various royal families, an association with the Olympic team was something these companies also began to advertise with great pride. 
Apparently, the appointment as an official costumer for the Olympics was so covetable and thus copyable that the committee actually found it necessary to take out a two-page ad in Women's Wear Daily to assert conclusively who the authorized manufacturers were, confirming that, quote, only garments worn by the contestants will bear this official emblem. And that was a label, quote, that will be issued under a rigid control system so only firms authorized by the American Olympic Clothing Committee can use it. And it goes on, so... For the information of all of those interested, we present the list of authorized manufacturers officially chosen by the clothing committee of the Olympic Games. And so it is in this way that Olympic clothing began to make its way into fashion establishments. So not only were there displays of the actual uniforms in leading department stores throughout the country, but Olympic fashions were also made available for purchase, marketed with slogans like, you'll be a winner this summer in Olympic fashions. And as Women's Wear Daily reported in May of 1932, quote, B. Altman and Company and Arnold Constable and Co. drew the attention to the Olympic Games with their window displays this week. Altman uses five interlocking rings, the colorful insignia of the games, magnified and in huge circles as a background for the fashions, and also applies the small felt ones to dresses and bathing suits. And really, it's this sort of Olympic branding of ready-to-wear clothing You know, it was not something that we had really seen at this time, but we are going to see a little bit more of it moving forward. Oh, yeah, a lot more, but not yet. And the fact that these uniforms were American-made and designed was of particular significance to Lord and Taylor's then-vice president and future president, Dorothy Shaver. So mere months before these, this display of Olympic fashion in Lord and Taylor's windows, Shaver had spearheaded this ambitious campaign for the store known as American Fashions for American Women. And it was really intended as this effort to bring American fashion to the fore at a time, you know, when American designers were really in the shadows of Paris. So this campaign highlighted the work of three American fashion designers, Edith Marie Roos, Annette Simpson, and a dressed favorite, Elizabeth Hawes. Oh, Lizzie. Love you. This promotion of American fashion was somewhat radical at the time because, you know, Haas herself said that the American industry and, you know, even others outside of France were still operating in what she referred to as the French legend that all beautiful clothes were made by French couturiers and that all women around the world wanted French clothes specifically. But um, Shaver, as part of this American promotion, she was really on a mission to dispel the French legend. And while department store promotions of American-designed, Olympic-inspired clothing did not highlight specific American designers by name, but rather company, it was an important step in revealing the potential of translating Olympic pride into marketable, wearable goods that were made in the good old USA. And it can actually also be argued that Olympic spirit was not only embodied by clothing in department stores, but even captured on the cover of fashion magazines. So stay with me here. April, I literally never made the connection between the first photographic cover of Vogue and the Olympics. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to make it. You guys can decide if you agree with me. But we've talked about Edward Steichen's groundbreaking image before. It features a woman in a red bathing suit. And the cover makes clear that the fashion magazine and the swimsuit were entering this new era intertwined in this mutually obsessive relationship between fashion and the swimsuit from which they will never emerge. We're still seeing that today. 
But what I never realized before doing this episode is that this image appeared on the July 1st, 1932 beauty issue of Vogue, and that is the same month as the opening of the 10th Summer Olympiad. So a few months later, even, Steichen actually photographed Olympic diver Jane Fonts, and she appeared in the September issue of Vanity Fair. So coincidence? I argue no. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Vogue did not explicitly acknowledge this connection, but undeniably Olympic spirit was in the air. And let me tell you, as an Olympic fan, it is really contagious, whether you realize it or not. Yes. Well, I think it's safe to say that 1932 really revealed the potential of what could be when the American fashion industry and the Olympic Committee joined forces. This appears to be the first time that the fashion industry, so we're talking about manufacturers, magazine editors, department stores, well, they're really recognizing the benefits of being associated with this international event, as well as its roster of soon-to-be celebrity athletes and vice versa. So, you know, this is also something that we will witness in a little bit and of a different context at the 1936 Olympics which is perhaps the most notorious Olympics in history and also the subject of our next query. But first, we're going to do a quick 400-meter sprint through a sponsor break. Welcome back. So many of the Olympic traditions familiar to us today are imbued with meaning and reverence that transcend national boundaries to become internationally recognized emblems of shared pride, peace, and solidarity between nations. And the Olympic torch lighting ceremony and torch relay are two such events. The Olympic flame has been burning at the Olympic Games since 1928, an homage to the sacred fire that burned throughout the entirety of the ancient games. But it was not until 1936 that the torch relay was introduced, and it continues to this very day. So following a torch lighting ceremony in Athens, Greece, the Olympic torch is carried by thousands of runners across thousands of miles, land, and even sea to be delivered to that year's host country, where in the opening ceremony, the lighting of the Olympic cauldron marks the opening of the Olympic Games. So since 1936, this torch lighting ceremony has taken place at the very same spot. It's the site of the ancient Olympic Games in what is left of the ancient stadium, of Olympia. So that's now an archaeological site, of course. And April, I think you'll agree with me. How did it take us this long <laughs> to watch this ceremony for the first time? Because I had never seen it before. You and I both watched it. Wasn't it just amazing? I felt the exact same way. I'm like, how did I not know about this? I'd actually seen images of the ancient stadium at Olympia. So I kind of knew what, what it looked like today in terms of like the ruins and also the part that was like, you can still see the competition field, which is really cool. But I, I didn't even know that this whole ceremony that started there existed and highly recommend friends run don't walk to youtube and check it out yeah it's so fun and of course you can watch it from other years prior but april and i happened to watch the beginning of the 2020 tokyo olympics so this was of course held in march of last year and what's interesting is that it's at the very start of covid something we all remember when we're all like what's going to happen? Surely this is going to be over in a couple months. So the ceremony had actually been scaled back out of precaution, but it appears to have still held a lot of the same pomp and circumstance as it did when it was first inaugurated over 80 years ago. So it really transported me. I'm sure it did you too, April, and all of the other viewers. It really transports you back to these ancient times. And dress actually plays 
no small role in this captivating experience. Yes, and 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 there's all sorts of things happening. There's like recitations, there's a whole dance performance. But, you know, each Olympics, and, and today we just want to point out that today that means the Olympics every two years, not necessarily four years. But um, every two years currently, the Olympic Committee and representatives from Greece and the host country gather all together at the ancient stadium to commemorate the beginning of this momentous occasion. And there are opening remarks from the IOC committee and representatives from each country. The Olympic anthem is played and the Olympic flag is hoisted by members of Greece's presidential guard. And this guard is a ceremonial infantry unit, which guards the presidential mansion in Athens, as well as the tomb of the unknown soldier, which is a monument to Greek soldiers killed in war. And the guard's ceremonial uniform, as you'll see when you watch the ceremony, is so singular and so striking in its appearance. And it stands, obviously, in such stark contrast to, you know, presenters in their contemporary dresses and suits. April and I, of course, just had to know more, especially since they were worn since this inaugural ceremony in 1936. So perhaps it will come as no surprise that these uniforms are packed with symbolic punch. For one, the infantry unit was first established in 1868, but the uniform actually finds precedence in earlier uniforms worn by Greek military units with additions, of course, to these, you know, ceremonial uh, outfits that have a little bit more added flair. Yes. And the ceremonial regiment, their uniform consists of a scarlet fez, which is, of course, a little hat, to which is attached a very long black silk tassel. And this is worn with a very blousy white shirt with wide sleeves. There are yellow stripes on the sleeves that apparently indicate the wearer's military rank. And the shirt is worn underneath an embroidered vest or waistcoat and paired with this incredible flared kilt known as a fustanella that extends down to mid-thigh. And each fustanella is reportedly made of 400 exacting pleats, and that is one pleat per year of Ottoman occupation. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. And then there's uh, additionally, there's these beautiful blue and white fringes, the color of the Greek flag that appear over the skirt that move to and fro as the wearer marches. And the ensemble is completed with white wool stockings held in place by garters. And finally, red leather clogs with this big pom-pom. And these shoes are exceptionally remarkable because they weigh reportedly up to three and a half pounds each. Yeah, due to the 60 to 120 nails used in their construction. And this uniform actually has thousands of years of tradition under its proverbial belt, although they do actually also literally wear a black leather cartridge belt, but I digress. There's actually archaeological evidence of Grecian warriors wearing the fustanella as far back as the 12th century AD. So these garments come with a long history. Dating back even further, however, are the chiton-inspired garments worn by the ceremony's priestesses, who actually direct and dictate the entire ceremony, from the lighting of the flame at the archaeological site at the Temple of Hera to the procession in which they walk the flame to light the Olympic torch. And it's very, very cool. I did a little bit of research into this, actually, and the high priestess is 
usually a choreographer. And it's an honor that's handed down from like previous generations of the high priestess to next high priestess. And the choreographer is responsible for choreographing that particular ceremony's dance that happens. I just loved this so much. And I have a really dear friend who is a professor of choreography at Tulane. And I was like texting her all this information. <laughs> I'm like, did you know this? Yeah. And this year's choreographer had actually been, because usually the ceremony features children. Mm -hmm. So it's like this huge honor to be a part of this. Um, and she used to be one of the children um, who participated in like singing the national anthem. And so I think it's something you like work your way up to mm -hmm. do and be. So this is the highest honor is to be the high priestess. So at last year's ceremony, there were 31 priestesses plus this one choreographer who choreographed and led the procession and then the accompanying performance. And then there's one high priestess who prays to the gods of Zeus and Apollo, asking them in Greek, of course, to bless the games. Apparently, each flame lighting ceremony in Olympic history has had unique choreography, and there's also like a special musician who composes for the ceremony, but they all follow in the footsteps of the inaugural flame lighting ceremony of 1936, which paid homage to ancient Grecian ceremonies. In 1936, the International Olympic Committee wrote in their official report, quote, the ceremony of lighting the fire itself took place at the starting base of the Olympic Stadium, spectators not being admitted, and we should note that that did change in 2020. But they go on to say, 15 young Greek maidens entered the ancient stadium through the covered passageway in order to ignite the Olympic fire with the aid of hot noonday sun. A magnifying glass mounted on an iron stand caught the rays of the sun, which stood high above the Alphos Valley and concentrated them upon inflammable material, which soon began to burn. The fire was then carried by the Greek maidens past the Temple of Hera to the fire altar in front of Altus, where the first runners were waiting. It was a moment deeply impressive in its solemnity when the first runner ignited his torch and accompanied by the enthusiasm of the spectators who had gathered from near and far began the first stage of the relay run. I'm just going to put this small note in there. So we all remember Pierre de Coubertin, who's the founding father of the modern Olympics. Today, in today's ceremony, I'm not sure when this started, the runner runs by a monument to Pierre de Coubertin. Oh, His heart's in there. <laughs> his body's buried somewhere else. Oh, you mean his actual heart? Yes. Oh, I his thought you meant like, like, like <laughs> metaphorical spirit. Nope. Oh. Nope. His oh. actual heart is buried in, um, in, this, in this monument in Olympia. His body is somewhere else, but his heart is in Olympia, which is a fitting metaphor, but also happens to be true. Wow. <laughs> Anyways, so in 1936, a young Greek athlete by the name of Constant Condylis was the first runner to have this honor of carrying the first Olympic flame or running the first leg of the marathon. He was then followed, and April already said this, but by 331 runners. And today there's 10,000 participants who run after another, run with this torch, pass it off to the next person. And in 1936, this took place over a period of 12 days. It was transported over 2,000 miles before it arrived with great fanfare in... Nazi Germany. <laughs> yes, you heard that correctly. Nazi Germany was the site of the 1936 11th Summer Olympiad. 
And while there is some question as to who actually came up with the idea of the torch relay, it was quickly co-opted as part of Nazi propaganda. In fact, the Nazis intended the entire Olympics to be used in service of their white supremacist agenda. And let me tell you, in some ways it worked. So to say the least, it's absolutely jarring to read the Olympic Committee's praise of these games in their official report, knowing what we know now, of course. Oh, high praise. For instance, one passage from the report reads, quote, I feel certain that the stupendous preparations which Germany has made for the Olympic Games and which are particularly obvious in the excellent organization of the festival will constitute a permanent monument to the contribution of what she has made to human culture in general. All those who appreciate the symbolism of the sacred fire, which has been born from Olympia to Berlin, are profoundly grateful to your excellency for having not only provided the means of binding the past and present, but also for having contributed to the progress of the Olympic ideals in future years. And I'm pretty sure your excellency is Hitler. Just saying. Yes. And this report goes on, quote, the Olympic Games catering to youth of all nations and dedicated to the Olympic ideal of a sound mind in a well-developed body, probably reached their ultimate consummation in Berlin when the old world and the new, the countries of the Far East and the lands of the South, met together in friendly rivalry for the honor of country and the glory of sport. And, you know, this message of youth was certainly on display in the opening ceremony when German athlete Fritz Schulgen, um, selected because he was, quote, the symbol of German sporting youth, in other words, meaning that he was athletic, he was blonde, Aryan. Well, Fitz entered the stadium with great fanfare, carrying the Olympic flame. And Fritz was, of course, the last runner on the Flames' long journey. He appears in his white athletic uniform, and he really presents this striking contrast to the tens of thousands of identically dressed Hitler youth he ran by on his way to light the Olympic cauldron. Not to mention the rows and rows of swastika-adorned banners that they all stood in front of. And there were reportedly 100,000 more uniformed Hitler youth outside the stadium walls. So collectively, this is a staggering display of allegiance to Hitler's despotic and disgusting regime. Talk about harnessing the power of uniformity for your cause, April. It's not always positive. Yes. And the Germans were not the only country to present a powerful picture of national pride and uniformity. The international nature of the event was on full display in the distinctive attire of the 5,300 athletes from 51 participating countries who participated in the opening ceremony parade. And this is something that the official report of the International Olympic Committee documented in photographs and actually that the American Olympic Committee described in detail. So maybe, Cass, we could just do a very, very brief rundown about what some of the countries were wearing as parade uniforms. Sure. Okay. Um, I'm going to quote the report here, which says that the French team of 250 appeared in blue berets, blue coats, and white trousers. Bulgaria goose-stepped past the reviewing stand. The Afghanistans and Indians wore their native turbans. The Argentines, Australians, and Chinese in naval caps, cricket caps, and straw hats, respectively. The English team made a very presentable appearance in navy blue coats, straw hats, and white trousers. The Canadian group with red blazers and white trousers. Japan was one of the largest delegations at the Games in straw hats, blue coats, and white trousers. The Egyptians in red fezes and the Italian athletes in fascist caps. 
The American team of 383 wore white trousers, blue coats with the Olympic emblem embroidered on the left breast, straw hats with the small Olympic emblem on the band, white shirts, red, white, and blue neckties, white sports shoes and socks, and the women athletes from the United States were dressed in blue tailored jackets, white skirts, white felt hats, white blouses, white shoes, and hose. It's a lot of white. (laughs) (laughs) And blue. Everyone's wearing a blue jacket with like white bottoms. (laughs) I know. So to break things up a bit, there is actually a funny story about these men's straw hats worn by the U.S. This is a story brought to you, dress listeners, by American long-distance runner Louis Zamperini in his oral history for the LA84 Foundation. I'll go ahead and play Louis. Uh, You play the interviewer, April. Mm. Louis says, quote, The funniest thing about the opening ceremonies was that we had these straw hats on, a Buster Keaton hat. They were nice-looking hats. We were all out there on the field during the opening ceremonies, and there were at least 5,000 pigeons released, and these pigeons circled right overhead and dropped on us. (laughs) And you could hear on these straw hats, splat, splat. Everyone tried to stand attention, but it was pretty hard. One of those untold Olympic moments, see? (laughs) Yep, they should have told the pigeons. (laughs) And then Luis goes on to say, in all seriousness, making the Olympic team for me really was a high adventure. So there was a lot of surprising praise for the 1936 Olympics found in the oral histories of athletes who attended these games, you know, really evidence that the Nazi propaganda techniques at this time worked. Um, And judging by the AOC's glowing report of the games, you never would have guessed that there had been movements to boycott the games after news of Hitler's anti-Semitic policies had reached the U.S. in years prior. There is a whole lot more to this story about the 1936 Summer Games that we don't really have time to address here. So we highly encourage you to check out some of the podcasts and documentaries that have already been made on this subject, including Stuff You Missed in History Classes 2012 episode on the very topic, as well as the documentary film Olympic Pride, American Prejudice, How 18 Black Olympians Defied Jim Crow and Hitler in 1936. And, you know, despite the Nazi associations, there actually is plenty of inspiration to be found in these Olympic Games. So most notably at the 1936 Olympics were the accomplishments of these 18 Black American athletes. And that includes Olympian Tidy Pickett, who was the first African-American woman to ever compete in the Olympic Games. And most famously, the indomitable track star Jesse Owens, whose world record-breaking achievements actually made him famous in Germany before ever even setting foot there. There's this fantastic story that Jesse's teammate, James Laval, recalls, and he says, quote, When we arrived in Berlin, there was this mob of young people, a lot of girls yelling, Who is Jesse? Who is Jesse? Where is Jesse? Remembering Jesse has set four world records here in the United States that year. So they wanted to see him while Jesse got off the train and these teenage girls had scissors and they started snipping off his clothes. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's a different sort of Olympic fashion story. Yeah. Different sort of Olympic fashion history. So somebody somewhere out there probably has a little snippet of his clothing somewhere. Yeah, in a scrapbook. Uh, And if anybody does, send us an email. Let us know. (laughs) So in one of the most significant moments in sports history, Jesse would go on to win four Olympic gold medals at the 1936 Games in crushing defeats of both his German opponents and Nazi white supremacist ideologies. Yeah, and it is just incredible when you look at all of the photographs of his wins. He's up there on the Olympic platform in the top spot. 
This is a Nazi Germany. He has his laurel wreath on. He has his gold medal on. He is saluting the American flag, which is raised when an Olympic athlete wins. And then he is surrounded. In in a lot of these cases, there are German athletes on the podium with him, and they're hailing Hitler. And in some cases, you span out, and there's all these Germans around him hailing Hitler. And there is this Black man, Jesse Owens, in first spot four times. So it's such an incredibly symbolic moment. It gives me chills just talking about it. Right. Well, and, and the best part is, is Jesse's wins, of course, actually occurred in front of Hitler himself. And exactly. <laughs> Jesse did all of this while wearing German-made shoes. And not just any German shoes, dress listeners. This is a crazy story that I had never heard about. These are shoes made by the Dassler brothers. That's Adolf and Rudolf, who began their shoe company in 1924, which at the time was the only shoe factory in Germany that produced shoes for sports. And eager to have the world's greatest track star wear their product, Adolf apparently visited the Olympic Games and was able to not only meet Jesse, but convince him to wear these shoes, which apparently were extra special because they had these really long spikes, which allowed you to run faster. But it is actually what happened to the shoe company after the Olympics that has the most significance for sport and fashion history, because these weren't just any German shoemakers. Adolf and Rudolf would go on to found the companies of something, you know, two companies you just may have heard of, Adidas and Puma, respectively. Yes. Join us, stress listeners, in getting your mind blown. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently, the brothers went their separate ways after World War II when their relationship to the Nazi party came under scrutiny. Rudolph reportedly supported the Nazi regime, whereas Adolf did not. But it was actually Adolf that was threatened with two to three years in prison as a lower rank of offender. And this is being in terms of being a collaborationist. Whereas Rudolph, who is actually pro-Hitler, got off scot-free. So Rudolph went as far as to try and to exploit his brother's imprisonment to gain complete control of the company. Needless to say, it is because of this conflict that the brothers ended up going their separate ways. And they both went on to found two of the most successful shoe companies in the world. Who knew that this many stories were actually stitched into the clothing of Olympic athletes? Right. And of course, we should say that these stories aren't in any way reflective of these shoe companies today. But there's obviously a lot more of the stories stitched into Olympic clothing worn by Olympic athletes um, that is going to happen in our next episode. Because I, I don't know if you've noticed, dress listeners, but we haven't actually made it out of the 1930s. <laughs> So next, we're going to start with an inspiring Olympic love story. Without the 1948 Olympics, one of the most colorful and beloved fashion brands may never have existed. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the stories sewn into the clothing you wear next time you get dressed. We do love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also write to us on Instagram by DMing us at dressed underscore podcast. And of course, we do post images each week to accompany our episodes on Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. As always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each week. More Dress Tuesday.
Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.